The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV and Resonate Recordings. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence and graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There's definitely overkill in the sense that there's five rounds fired. Obviously, anytime you use more force than is necessary, that's overkill. It's not like an entire magazine, you know. It's not all the rounds that were in the the weapon, because that would be at least six, if not, you know, 15. But it is concerning that there was enough bullets to kill everybody in that car a couple times over. I think you'll find that there's been some offense taken or some bad feeling that's occurred and that this is the product of it. As a culpable listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. One thing I've learned working in true crime is that your best line of defense is vigilance and preparation, which is why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. I happen to live in a pretty nice neighborhood, but as you know, crime has a way of being anywhere at any time, even when you least expect it. When our car was broken into and items were stolen, I was so relieved to know that my home security system got the footage and it eventually led to us being reimbursed by the perpetrator once they were caught. Crime is just waiting to happen, so be prepared at all times and equip yourself with Simply Safe, the best home security system of 2024, according to U.S. News and World Report. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash culpable. That's simplysafe.com slash culpable. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist June Parker on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hi, are you Sean? Yeah. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Nice to meet you. Dennis. Hey, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hey, you're the cameraman. Yeah. <laughs> just recording. Or audio man, just whatever. Audio, just audio. <laughs> yeah. So we were actually thinking maybe instead of like a sit down or anything, we just, if we could ride over with you to the, the spot okay, and just kind of talk to you as you show us around yeah, sure. um, from that night. All right. Well, you know where it's at. Can we ride with you? Yeah, that, is that possible? There's no seat. This is Deputy Sean Enlow yeah, with the Brown County Sheriff's Office. The purpose of our meeting is to go visit what we'll call the scene ride. of the crime a wooded patch of land just off the side of U.S. Highway 68. 
where Brittany Stikes was found murdered inside her Jeep Wrangler. One thing I find unique about this case is there really are two crime scenes, because there are technically two places where a crime took place, the highway Brittany was driving on and the Jeep she was driving in. But we'll of course need to analyze both as we discuss the little bit of physical evidence we have in this case. Now, the reason we wanted to make this trek with Deputy Inlow of all people is simple. He was the first responder on the night of August 28th. And because of that, our hope is that he can maybe speak to a little bit of everything as far as the crime scene goes. It's been many years, and that can tend to hurt someone's memory. Not to mention, Enlow wasn't a crime scene expert, or even an investigator for that matter. So he probably wasn't looking at it through those lenses. But that doesn't change the fact that he was the first person to analyze the scene itself. So there really couldn't be a better place for us to start our deep dive. Jessica is driving separately to the scene. Enlow was able to clear out enough room in the back seat of his cruiser for my engineer and I to ride along with. What seemed like a good idea for a few minutes, until the lack of AC led to a torrential downpour of sweat. And by the way, if you ever find yourself in that situation, the windows in the back of a sheriff's deputy's cruiser do not open. So your shift hasn't even started? No, no, I don't. I work six to six. Okay. Help you guys out. Well, man, I'd greatly appreciate that. I didn't, we just assumed it was probably on your shift. So, thank you even more so for doing this. Oh, yeah, no problem. Doing overtime, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. Is this where you grew up to? You've been here most of your life? No, I, my family is from this area. Inlo isn't from the area. He arrived here right on the heels of the police academy and says he just kind of never left. It seems like a common theme for transplants around here. His fellow officer, Sergeant Carlson, and my fellow producer, Jessica, both give similar reasoning for why they never left. Like them, Enloe loves the people in this community, and he appreciates the small and close-knit feeling. I feel like we're getting close. I hope I didn't pass it. No, I think you're right. I think we're getting close. I think it's up in that next patch of trees there. Yeah. We spot it. That towering cross we first visited with Brittany's parents, Dave and Mary. Still with the bright red winged heart in the middle, made from flowers, I still vividly remember Dave walking us down that hill behind the cross, but I'm really eager to visit it again. It's been almost a year to the day, and we've learned a lot in that time. Oh, there's no door handles left. Yeah. <laughs> no door handles. Save yeah, me yeah, when you can. You're at the mercy of me right now. Yeah. Keep in mind that Deputy Enloe is working off memory to try and best retrace his steps. He actually starts by recounting the moment he got the call to assist. To set the scene a little here, Enlow was working for the Georgetown Police Department back when this happened, and he was on his shift the evening of the murder. He was taking his normal evening break, eating a meal at the local subway when he got the call. It was reported that an accident had occurred on US Highway 68, just 10 minutes from the subway. Enlow says it was normal to be called to assist highway patrol on car crashes. So after hearing the call, he hopped in his cruiser and rushed to the scene right where we find ourselves now. Enlow scans the area intently, trying to remember the specific angle he took that evening, before eventually leading us down the hill to where he believes is the exact spot Brittany was found. I don't remember it being that thick, but I guess it could have been, really. I wouldn't really pay attention to that. But if I was to guess, I would say this is right where, somewhere around, but right here would be where, where it was at. Okay. Um, which it's crazy because I don't remember that creek being there. I don't know how that Jeep could have got across that, but it definitely did. So I, I, this would be my guess because I didn't even go that far because there's a fence and it was pointing up, kind of like the headlights up. Yeah. Up that way? You said so the back was facing the road? He was sitting right here. Like this. Okay. It came through there. Oh, it came through the top yeah. and down, yeah. up. Holy oh, wow. Yeah, that's why I'm like, that. that's why it's uh, kind of strange to me. Wow. And, and I remember, I think there was like a little tree. Like, see that tree right there? I, I doubt that's it, but it was a little tree like that. It was right in the front of the Jeep, and the Jeep was kind of like up on it. And I think the, Jeep, the trees is what kind of slowed, slowed its process down. Um, Right off the bat, as he describes the angle at which she entered and the surrounding terrain, 
were reminded of the importance of perspective. When Dave walked us down here after Brittany's vigil a year ago, we went down what I'd call a mildly steep and not too bumpy hill with a lot of tall grass and plants and a few small trees. But the direction Enlo says he entered that night, which he claims is the same direction the Jeep entered, suggests it would have been a much bumpier ride to a halt. This is more like a cliff with a six foot plus drop off and a ravine to cross over and numerous trees to pass through. Though apart from the change of angle, we find ourselves again visiting in the same month and around the same time that the murder occurred. Meaning everything from the foliage to the weather to the traffic should be roughly the same as it was nine years ago when he arrived on scene to help with what he believed to be a car crash. So when I came, I was the first one on scene. I didn't see any Jeep, nothing at all. I seen was a couple people out on the highway and they were pointing into the woods. And even the people on the highway thought that it was a crash. I turned around, came, parked my car right about there on the other side of that field, which is why I said I'd have to come in from this way. And I could see two headlights in the distance. It was just getting dusk. So it's kind of starting to you know, not be as sunny. So all you could see was the two headlights. You couldn't see the Jeep really. So I guess there could have been some foliage up. And then, you know, I ran in, came in and then seen the young lady and then a baby in the seat. But at that point, we still thought that it was a crash. She was obviously deceased, um, had blood on her and stuff like that. And the baby had blood all over the place. And the baby wasn't crying or nothing anymore. Um, Based on what I thought, it it appeared that they had been here. I felt like for at least half an hour to 45 minutes, um, maybe longer, maybe shorter. But it didn't just happen, I didn't feel like. I think the baby had just cried itself out. Inlow says it was an odd situation looking back because a lot of what he was doing in the moment was trying to make sense of what he was looking at. He had a deceased woman covered in blood and a baby also bloody, but thankfully alive. And he was operating as if it was a standard car crash, all the while having this feeling that it had to be something worse. And so you just couldn't tell at first because the injuries were opposite to the side you were trying to tend to her? Well, even then you couldn't, I mean, you couldn't really see the bullet holes. It was a Jeep, so it had that plastic doors and plastic windows and most of the I don't even remember if there was any bullet holes in the actual metal but there could have been but again at the time I'm here for a car wreck not a shooting so like being a shooting is like not even on my mind even if I seen the holes I would have been like I just got some holes in the jeep or somebody shot the jeep at some point but that specific moment we're here for a car wreck and and that's what didn't make sense I knew nothing added up from the minute I stepped on scene I knew that something was different It was just that process of trying, okay, what's going on here? Trying to figure that out. While Enlo awaited backup to make a better determination of the scene, he knew the best thing he could do was tend to the baby, Aubrey. He remembers her big white eyes staring at him and looking up to see a cut in the center of her forehead, which he likened to a Harry Potter scar. He knew she still had a chance of survival. Eventually, other responders arrived, and they got Aubrey out of the Jeep, and took her up to an ambulance, which was now on the side of the highway, ready to tend to her. He then returned to the Jeep to continue assessing the situation. So as we were looking around, we went over to the driver's side of the car, and that's where you could see multiple perfect little circles throughout the car, and then then it kicked. This is a shooting. And then at that point, that's when we inspected her a little further, and we found a gunshot wound in the back of her neck. Like I said, there was no pulse, no, no sign of life, no nothing like that. You know, but at that point, we don't make those determinations. We just stay there and wait for a medical professional to come and see if they can do anything at that point. Once it was determined they were dealing with a shooting, Enlow's work was finished, as it wasn't his jurisdiction. So he let the proper authorities take over. And from that point on, he tells us the night was kind of a blur. All he remembers is at some point ending up at the hospital where Aubrey was being tended to and he remembers he was holding her car seat. He's not even sure why he ended up there. It could have been to check on her status. It could have been to deliver the car seat. But he imagines it's a little of both. How does something like this affect you as law enforcement, being that you were the first one on the scene? If it does, does it stick with you? How does this affect you? Well, yeah, this is one of those cases that you'll never forget this. You might forget some small details, but even if the case gets solved, like, 
I'll never forget what I seen. Like I'm seeing it right now. It's the first time I've been back since it happened, but like I see it just as I did when I was there nine years ago. You know, hopefully it Inlow tells us there wasn't really anything that looked out of the ordinary to him. No red flags, you could say. And he doesn't recall seeing anything noteworthy as far as physical evidence goes. But again, he was with the Georgetown Police Department when this happened. Therefore, this wasn't his jurisdiction. Not to mention, most of the time he was on scene, he was working it as if it were a car wreck. So it's understandable that he'd be limited in the details he remembers from that night. Which is why from here, I'd like to go over the police report from that night, as that can start to fill in a few more details for us here. If you remember, back a few episodes ago, we read from the second half of the police narrative, which picked up after Shane was told the news that night. But we still haven't gone over the first page of the narrative, which begins once Detective Rick Haney was notified. Here's what the narrative says. I was called by Corporal Meyer about this incident. He was not on scene. I advised him to call me when he got on scene. I then called Sergeant Moore. He was advised of all. He recommended that I call Chief due to his being ill. Chief responded down, arriving before I did. He advised me to call Deputy Bingaman and BCI. I called Deputy Bingaman and requested that dispatch call BCI. Upon my arrival at the scene at the location, I saw numerous emergency response personnel on the roadway. I spoke to Sheriff Winninger and was informed that this was our case. I walked out into the woods where the vehicle was located. There, I made contact with multiple OSP officers and with Dr. Varnow, the county coroner. I was told that there was also an infant in a car seat. That was in the passenger seat. I could see in the driver's side door multiple bullet holes. There were three evident in the metal door panel of the Jeep Wrangler and two in the plastic of the ragtop door, which was zipped up. The surrounding area had been trampled by first responders and emergency personnel. Due to the positioning of the surrounding vegetation, it appeared that the shots occurred in a different location. Inside was a Caucasian female that appeared to be in her early 20s. She was slumped to her right while sitting unbuckled in the driver's seat. There was what looked like a bullet hole in the neck of the female on the left side. No exit was seen. There were more holes in the plastic window on the passenger side. The passenger seat was empty, with items on the floorboard. There was mud splattered in the driver compartment on the dashboard. It appeared dry and occurring well prior to this incident. There was also large amounts of blood spatter that was from the driver's side to the passenger side. This appeared to be moist. From the passenger side, I could see large globs of red gelatinous material, which were blood clots. These clots were on the female's right side, near the female seatbelt adapter. There also appeared to be a piece of lung near that. I returned to the roadway and made contact with an OSP trooper. He advised that the person that called this in was secured in his car. A Russellville firefighter approached me and advised that he was flagged down by the caller and was on scene right after him. He explained his actions, which were basic triage and a sternum rub in an effort to revive the female. He further advised that the caller had assisted him in tending to the infant. A squad member, Nee, I believe, advised that she had removed the infant and seat from the Jeep to be transported. She advised that the child had a severe head injury and was being flown from Southwest Regional. Deputy Bingaman arrived and I apprised him the situation, along with BCI's response. He and I went down and viewed the site. He advised that he would get photographs while waiting for BCI. I walked back up the scene and spoke to a trooper. I asked if they could do the accident scene due to their expertise in this area. They advised that they would do whatever was needed. At this point, a volunteer firefighter came to me and stated that Blaze Long had seen the Jeep in the woods around 7.15 p.m. He lives on Jensen Road and has a set-up suburban in the drive. 
BCI and OSP traffic crash reconstructionist arrived on scene. I made contact with Greg LaBelle. He is the caller on this incident. A statement was obtained from him. He advised that he and his wife were driving northbound. He observed the Jeep, but originally continued on. He became concerned and turned around. He went down and found the scene. He then attempted basic first aid while calling for emergency services. His wife, Sandra, stayed up by the car. Chief Shadel and Corporal Meyer responded to the registered owner of the vehicle's residence on Chicken Hollow. Chief called me a short time later. He advised that Daryl Shane Stikes had responded like any other grieving person would. A few things to go over here. First, there were five bullet holes, all on the driver's side, three in the metal door frame, and two in the plastic window. There were also multiple holes found on the passenger side window. It was reported that based on the surrounding vegetation, it looked as though the shots occurred elsewhere. In other words, somewhere up on the highway. There wasn't much context given to support this claim, but he did go on to mention there was mud inside the vehicle on the driver's side, though it was dry and thought to have been there well before the incident occurred. They also reported a large amount of fresh blood spatter that had not yet dried. It stretched from the driver's side to the passenger side. And then there was one other comment made near the end that I want to be sure to address. The officer said that a volunteer firefighter told him a man named Blaze Long had seen the Jeep in the woods around 7.15 p.m. Unfortunately, we haven't yet been able to track down Blaze to get his story. So from the police report, we were able to gather at least a few key facts. Probably the most important of those being the five bullet holes in the driver's side door and the multiple holes in the passenger side window. But also of importance is the theory that the shots were not fired in the wooded area where the Jeep was found. At least that's how it appeared to the detective at the scene. It seemed more likely that the shots were fired on the highway. Now, I know this doesn't say a ton about the ballistics in this case, and I regret to inform you that the Brown County Sheriff's Office wants to keep these cards close to their chest, understandably, but we'll get there. Fortunately, we have other ways of getting that information, one of which actually involves Brittany's husband, Shane Stikes. If you remember, Shane was the one who actually owned the Jeep. Brittany typically drove a minivan, but shortly before the murder, Shane tells us he had Brittany start driving the Jeep. It was in need of maintenance, but drivable. And since Brittany mostly drove the same moderate distances between work, her and Shane's home, and her parents' home, whereas Shane, on the other hand, had to drive over an hour to work each day, he says it was best to have her drive the Jeep temporarily. When we sat down with Shane for this podcast, he insisted on showing us the Jeep. And yes, he does still own it. After the murder, there was of course a spell where he did not have the Jeep. For a long time, it was in the hands of authorities, who were investigating it as a crime scene. But Shane was determined to get his Jeep back. Giving it to her. She wanted it. I asked. I said, honey, do you want mommy's Jeep? We called it mommy's Jeep. I said, do you want mommy's Jeep? She said, what? I said, I can get it. I think I can get it. And we'll fix it all back up. And uh, when you're old enough to drive, I'll give it to you. And she said, "Let's, yeah, I want it. So God bless my attorney. Okay, I have an attorney who, out of the kindness of his heart, took that case on, did not accept a dime from me, and said, I'm just tired of watching good people get effed over. I couldn't even bury my wife in her wedding rings or nothing, man. They kept all that. And it wasn't a robbery because obviously the diamonds there, the cash, she had like two, three hundred dollars in cash on her, you know. I didn't understand how they kept telling me that I was never going to get it because it was evidence. I'm like, you're not going to drive the fucking Jeep to the courthouse and pull it up in the steps. You know what I'm saying? The the jury's not going to take a break and go out and look at the fucking Jeep. You're going to show them pictures, trajectory reports. I know how police work works, you know? I've watched CSI too. (laughs) But no, it's, you know, so... I kept telling him, he's like, they can't hold that. So my lawyer sued Brown County Sheriffs in Brown County Court and won. This wasn't a quick turnaround either. 
According to the News Democrat, Shane filed the lawsuit in September of 2017, and it went on for nearly a year before it was officially ruled on. Part of the argument centered around whether or not the Jeep was the crime scene. The Brown County Sheriff's Office believed it was. But in the end, the magistrate did not rule in their favor. In lieu of the ruling, Magistrate Ken Zook wrote, The evidence concerning the vehicle clearly shows that the vehicle was processed for evidence within a few days of it being properly seized through the execution of a search warrant. The evidence is also clear that the Ohio State Patrol sent some representatives to view and photograph the vehicle approximately two months after it was seized. Since October 2013, the vehicle has sat in the Brown County Sheriff's impound lot and has not been touched. In summary, it was determined that authorities have had plenty of time to get whatever evidence they need from the Jeep. Furthermore, Zook wrote, if they can't find it within five years, it is safe to believe that it doesn't exist. But Brown County Prosecutor Zach Corbin and Sheriff Gordon Ellis begged to differ. They felt it was important that they keep the Jeep as evidence so long as it remained an open investigation. According to the News Democrat, Prosecutor Zach Corbin said, quote, The problem is that you can't possibly forecast everything that could come up in the future. Who is to say that something won't come up in the future, that it wouldn't be beneficial for us to have that Jeep in our possession? And Sheriff Ellis expanded on that, saying, quote, We still have information that we have not been able to develop in the case. Some of the physical characteristics of the Jeep could still be important once we put information together in the case. Their argument was to no avail. The judge ruled in Shane's favor in June of 2018. The Brown County Sheriff's Office was given three months to get whatever evidence they needed from the Jeep, and it was released back to Shane. And people gave me shit about that, you know? Like, oh, that's sick. Why, you know, it's like, dude, there's so many memories. My dad bought this Jeep new, okay? And I had a Jeep, and we built Jeeps together. We went on Jeep outings. We four-wheeled all the time. My kids grew up in these Jeeps, you know? And uh, when my dad died, I took all those suspension off of my Jeep, put it on his Jeep, and then got rid of mine and kept his. And that's how I met Brittany. That's what, that was the first topic was my Jeep, you know? She was in love with this Jeep. Our first date was in this Jeep. You know, why would I want to give that up just for one bad memory? I'm not giving that up. For Shane, all the memories surrounding the Jeep outweigh the trauma that took place inside of it. But those good memories did not ease the pain of opening those doors for the first time after getting the Jeep back from the sheriff's office. Knowing what had happened in there was one thing. But seeing it, that was a different story. It, it, it was, it was uh, you know, it was rough. Opening the door and, and, you know, all my wife's blood was, like, piled up. Like a stalagmite, basically, of blood. And, and, and to, you know, just to deal with all that. All the shit that was in there, the, like Aubrey's diaper bag, and all, you know, it's like a memory lane. But that wasn't all that Shane found. Remember, the Jeep presumably came back to him just as it was found at the scene on the night of August 28th. Bullet holes and everything. As reported in the police narrative, there were five in total on the driver's side. And again, all the shots appeared to enter from the driver's side. So, this is the direction the Jeep's going. They come around this way, okay? And they get over here and they fire five shots, okay? Five shots. They continue to go on Jeep veers off the road down into where it was at. So a uh, couple bullets were in the old window, okay? This was a hit, but who knows? I don't know where it went, okay? There was two He's pointing to a spot right where the canvas and the door frame meet, where it appears that a bullet struck. But because of where it hit, it's hard to tell if that bullet entered the vehicle or not. There were two exits on that side and five entries over here. All were in the window, all were in this canvas and glass, okay? Even this one, there was a bullet hole down here where this hit this, all right? So, Aubrey's in that seat, and she's sitting on the passenger side, strapped in facing backwards, because she was young as could be. If these bullets are going this way, this one, 
means that they were obviously even up further. Okay, so the trajectories are going said way. How does a bullet hole get right here? Shane points to a third exit hole that's in the front windshield, which we hadn't heard about before. It's on the passenger side, about centered. If you can imagine Aubrey backward facing in that passenger seat, the hole would have been basically right behind her. How does it go through my wife and make this significant left turn? I know that's the bullet that went through Aubrey's head because when I went and got the Jeep, there was pieces of skin and skull stuck in the glass with Aubrey's hair in it. So I'm confused on how if the car's going that way and firing that way, how's that bullet come that way? So it was determined that was an exit, though. It was definitely an exit, yeah. It was the exit out of her head into the windshield and out. I don't know how it would do that hard left thing. That's what I can't figure out. He makes a good point. I'm not a crime scene expert by any stretch, but from the looks of it, I don't really see how any of the bullets would have exited that direction. And if it's true there was skin and hair found in that exit hole, that would increase the chances that it was in fact the fatal bullet which would have passed through Brittany, killing her and then struck Aubrey. But that still doesn't help explain how. We'll take a deeper look at that here in a bit. But first, there was one other thing that Shane found inside the Jeep that he wanted to tell us about. I noticed it at the store. I went to go get windshield wipers for it. And uh, I bought windshield wipers, and I reached in the thing to get change. And I was like, what in the hell? And it was a spent bullet. It wasn't, it wasn't a case, no case on it, no nothing. It was a spent lead bullet. And uh, I'm like, uh, <laughs> why would this be in here? You know what I'm saying? And so the first thing I did, I came home and called Chad Noble and said, hey, dude, <laughs> like, there's a bullet in this Jeep. He's like, what? And I don't, I mean, they supposedly combed this thing. Did he collect it? Yeah, I gave it to him, yeah. Before I gave it to him, I took pictures of it, measurements of it, with a tape measure, everything. I even held it up to that point in the door right there because it looks like the same size. But they're telling me it was not the same caliper bullet and there was absolutely no DNA on it. Okay. I handed it to him barehanded in my fingers and there was no DNA. There should have at least been mine on there. Yeah. Hmm. But I did it right. I called my friend. I was like, hey, I need you to come over here and witness this shit. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so I had a witness, and the whole transaction went under somebody watching it. You know what I mean? Because when I found that, I'm like, dude, I don't know if I trust this. You know what I mean? It felt like, I was like, dude, I've touched this. This has my DNA on it now, you know? Uh, I don't know what to do here, but I called him and gave it to him. So it was just buried in change? It wasn't even buried. It was right there on the top. So how do you explain it? I can't. (laughs) I can't, and they can't either, you know? Well, that's strange. Why in the world would there be a bullet in the cup holder? There's no way authorities overlooked that, right? And the Jeep hadn't been in Shane's possession, so what? Did someone else place it there? I don't know, but we're going to need to get some clarity on that. After our tour of the Jeep with Shane, we were still left feeling perplexed. So from there, we went and visited a friend of Jessica's, Wayne Wallace, a professor at the University of Cincinnati Claremont College, not too far from Brown County. We're set up in an empty classroom at the Claremont campus, where during the day, Wayne teaches criminal justice and forensic psychology, something he spent decades honing as a detective in northern Kentucky. Now, Wayne is retired from investigating, but he still consults on criminal cases. So we gave him everything we had on Brittany's case and asked him to lend his expertise. But before getting too deep, he first wanted to get this point across. You know, obviously, we're looking at something that is incomplete, there's uh, gaping holes here. 
that to make informed decisions, you need as much information and data as possible. So there's more missing than is present. Fortunately, we already have at least an idea of what happened as far as ballistics goes. But having just spoken with Shane about this, we decided the best place to start was to get Wayne's opinion on the Jeep itself. You've got a mobile crime scene. We have at least five shots in about a two and a half foot area of car door. And this person hit what they aimed at. If it is road rage, it's pretty good shot. And it's pretty directed at a source of anger or a target. Obviously, anytime you use more force than is necessary, that's overkill. It's not like an entire magazine, you know. It's not all the rounds that were in the, the weapon, because that would be at least six, if not, you know, 15. But uh, it is concerning that, that there was uh, enough bullets to kill everybody in that car a couple times over. In fact, we know that one bullet did, we think, all of the damage. That's correct. To the best of our knowledge, one bullet did the majority of the damage. We talked about this before, but what else can we gather about the bullets that were fired at the Jeep? We have a medical examiner who appears to have done a pretty good job explaining to us that wounds were left to right, front to rear, and slightly up. That gives us a trajectory. Probably more importantly is that we have accompanying blood spatter. The medical examiner who examined the body, again, determined that we saw a front to rear, left to right, slightly up trajectory in the bullet wound to the chest, through the lung, the heart, out the other lung, and exiting the right side. And specifically, the medical examiner excluded stippling and soot, which would be a contact injury or a close contact type of distance. And that's basically, it's gunpowder that burns into the skin. And we didn't see that on the vehicle, at least I don't think they found it on the vehicle. One thing that immediately stuck out to Wayne is there didn't appear to be anything indicating this was a close contact gunshot. Now, that certainly doesn't erase the theory that she was at a standstill when she was shot. It just means if the vehicle was at a stop and someone approached it and fired, they would have been at least a foot away, if not more. But keep in mind, Wayne is simply working off the autopsy report and crime scene photos which we provided to him. So he's a bit limited in his analysis, and therefore warns us that we will at times have to carefully engage in some conjecture as we discuss this. But let's read over the autopsy report, as that contains some important facts involving her injuries. The pathologist who performed the autopsy was Dr. Susan Allen. Here's what she reported. Dr. Allen determined the deceased was shot twice. One bullet entered the left side of the neck and exited through the back of the neck. The second bullet entered the left side, which struck both lungs and heart, before exiting the right side. The bullet then re-entered the right arm and exited the arm, through and through. Further examination showed abrasions of the right temple, chin, left neck, right leg, and left hand. There were contusions to the right wrist and left thigh. Dr. Allen removed a fetus that appeared approximately 17 weeks according to reported clinical history. There was no evidence of trauma or abnormalities. The sex of the fetus was undetermined at the time. While the fatal injuries to Brittany and her unborn child were pretty straightforward, it was the minor injuries she had, which Wayne found interesting. And the other thing that I have questions about is she has cuts and abrasions, scrapes and abrasions on her bodies. There can be many reasons for that. Listen to this. Temple, chin, neck, right leg, left hand. These aren't isolated. This appears to be throughout her body, on her right wrist, on her left thigh. And these are both abrasions, which are scrapes, you know, and cuts, and contusions, which are bruises. So various stages of healing, but also all throughout her body. And I'm curious to know, were these a result of something that day? I don't have an explanation. So that's it as far as injuries go. Now, let's move on to the entrance and exit holes from the bullets that were fired at the Jeep. This is where things get a little weird, but maybe a little more telling too. Looking at the crime scene photos, there are in fact five entry holes marked on the driver's side door of the Jeep, and they're all close together. I mean, very close. 
All of them struck the canvas topper and window. None appeared to hit the doorframe. I think Wayne is pretty accurate when he says the cluster of bullet holes is roughly a two and a half foot radius. And then, on the opposite side of the Jeep, are the exit holes. If you're facing the passenger side door, there are two holes, about two to three inches apart, in the top left corner of the plastic window. And one other hole, slightly lower, and one to two feet to the left, in the canvas, rather than the window. These bullet holes support what the pathologist noted regarding Brittany's injuries, that the bullets had to have traveled at a slightly upward angle. But there's one other exit hole, the one Shane said he can't make sense of, the bullet that exited the front windshield. Again, we know Aubrey was sitting up front in the passenger seat and was facing the rear. And we know a bullet traveling upward hit the top of her forehead. But this is where some of that conjecture comes into play. Almost directly behind where Aubrey's head would have been positioned, on the passenger side, roughly in the middle of the windshield, is that exit hole. One would imagine it was the bullet that struck her head. While Wayne says he's not entirely convinced it is an exit hole, based on the picture alone, there are some things he saw in the pictures to support it. I have it written down at 151. It has some hair in it. It also has radial fractures, which look to me, from the old days of being an accident reconstructionist, looks like contact damage. Um, that's the easiest explanation when you have hair in the concentric you know, fractures of the glass. That's consistent with contact. But evidently, the child was in a car seat facing the rear, and that wouldn't make any sense. Plus, the child's hair wasn't six or eight inches long, and that hair, as you can easily see, is hanging six to six, eight inches down from the center of that damage. So that's really weird. And I doubt that a bullet transferred hair directly into the middle of a windshield and then didn't go through the windshield. So we're talking about a bullet that entered the side of the victim, went through her lung, her heart, her other lung, exited, went through her arm, exited her arm, then went over and hit the child in the head, did its damage, and then took a 45-degree turn into the windshield. That doesn't make any sense. But it's a high velocity and a high-caliber round to do that much damage. Unfortunately, there's no way of knowing whether that hair belonged to Aubrey or Brittany, or if it could have belonged to both, for that matter. To the best of our knowledge, no DNA testing was performed. But how could you ever explain the bullet passing through one or both of the victims and taking a sharp turn out that front windshield? How would that be possible? First, to understand these things, we have to take our own expectations of the way we think physical evidence will behave and set it aside because the craziest stuff happens in real life. There's so many factors. This vehicle left the roadway, slid, spun, struck several objects. There's clear evidence of impact damage to the front of it, to the side of it. They did a good job of documenting. Even in the tires, you can see a 90-degree directional transference. Parts of where it went over the top of trees, you know, there's wood. They did a great job of showing and explaining what happened. This vehicle slid to a stop. It was not driven to a controlled stop. Particularly, the right front tire was turned hard to the right and up against a tree. That's what caused it to stop. So clearly, it appears to me she was shot before the vehicle came to a stop. With that having been said, the windshield is a real mystery because we don't know how the hair got there. We don't know what broke it. I've been looking at the photographs. I don't see any object in the vehicle that might explain that. But remember that in any collision, there are, are multiple events. One is the vehicles hitting one another, and the other is the occupants that are moving inside the vehicle. And if a vehicle stops real fast, they continue until they hit the windshield, the dashboard, the steering wheel, or whatever. Now she contacted the steering wheel, and you can see a smear of blood on what is the airbag in the center of the steering wheel, but there's no damage to it. And you know, that just indicates that she was bleeding before she moved forward at the point of final rest. Wayne says there are some other possibilities when it comes to the hole in the front windshield. For example, a blunt object in the vehicle could have launched forward and struck the windshield, but that wouldn't explain the hair. 
There's really no other circumstance I can think of that explains the hair, other than it being the bullet that struck Brittany and or Aubrey and then exited the front windshield. But Wayne was careful not to dismiss the exit holes found in the passenger side window. They are just as peculiar, but in a different way. We have a about a two and a half foot target group, shot group, and then about a, what, a couple of inches of an exit. So it's pretty interesting. Everything's exiting at the same place, but they're entering two feet apart. Something, something weird going on there. Something weird is going on there. I couldn't have said it better myself. When you take everything into consideration, you're left with what seems like endless possibilities. Whoever shot was from a lower vantage point than the victim was. That is, they fired up, they shot up. And there can be many reasons for that. You know, I've seen a, a five foot, six inch guy shoot a six foot, four inch guy, and it was almost shooting straight up in the air. He said he had his gun at eye height when he did that. But you can hold a gun at waist height and you know turn your wrist. And she was in a Jeep that appears to have been lifted a few inches. Was the shooter on foot or were they in another car? And if they were in a car, a car rests lower than a Jeep. That might account for the upward trajectory of it. Were they facing one another? Was she in front of another vehicle? Were they going different directions or were they driving the same direction if we're contemplating whether or not it was fired from another vehicle? Wayne elaborates with this anecdote. Imagine that you are in a you're on the passenger side of a vehicle and you look to your right and you're just observing vehicles that go by. They pretty much have to catch up to you before you can really catch a clear picture of what they are, right? Unless you really rotate your body or turn your head. So now put a gun in your hand and imagine that you're trying to shoot something off to your right. It's very hard unless you rotate your whole torso and it's extremely hard to be accurate. While it seems like a stretch, Wayne does not dismiss the idea that she could have been passed or paced alongside. But no matter how you look at it, five shots on target like that when you're driving 50 plus miles an hour is really hard to do. As an avid shooter, who's done his fair share of firearm testing over countless cases, Wayne stresses, it's really hard to do. And who knows, I mean, they, they documented wheel marks, tire marks, and I don't know if they knew what they were looking at. There's some burnout marks, you know, I don't know that if they were deducing that it was a suspect vehicle that did that. It could have been a squad, could have been anybody who did that. It could have been somebody before or after that incident. And there was a Ohio State Police accident reconstruction crew there. You don't do a reconstruction effort without coming to some conclusions. So somewhere there's a report that at least makes some assertions about the wreck. Wayne reminds us of the injuries Brittany sustained, most notably the bullet which passed through her lung. Whether she was at a stop or driving down the road, she couldn't have lived long after she was shot, meaning she didn't drive very far. We know where she ended up, but we can only approximate where the shooting took place. Something that would have helped narrow this down a little better would have been to check where the shell casings landed. But we're told that there were no shell casings found, which is also puzzling. What would be the circumstance where no shell casings would be found other than someone picking them up? Yeah, uh, so there would be no shell casings in a revolver. There may be no shell casings in a vehicle. I've seen lots of shootings where people shoot from within a vehicle and the casings are ejected in the vehicle. And then third would be somebody picked up after themselves, you know, to make sure that they hid the evidence or took measures to escape elude detection. They still have to prove what happened happened. And I would be bringing that Jeep into a courtroom and saying, have a look at this spatter because this tells the story of Brittany's last few moments on earth. And a prosecutor would agree with me, trust me, but also it would, it would help to prove the medical examiner, because what if the medical examiner retires, you know? Somebody else has to come to the same conclusions, where they'd see that blood spatter, or you get some hired gun who comes in and says, oh, that's not the way it happened. I know because I looked at a picture, you want the inside of that thing, and that's, it is giving up on the crime scene. What's more important, solving a case or getting this, you know, 20-year-old Jeep back to this, this guy? 
When you have physical evidence, you keep it for no matter how long to solve the case. There's obviously plenty of follow-up that needs to be done as far as the evidence goes. And one person who should be able to add to this, who we haven't spent a lot of time speaking with thus far, is the current lead detective, Sergeant Quinn Carlson. We now know that the physical evidence in this case is lacking. Ideally, a detective would have a lot more to work with. But Sergeant Carlson doesn't appear overly concerned with the lack thereof. Currently, he's taking a different approach to this case, one which could provide some new and potentially groundbreaking evidence. I'm trying to recreate data and information that was there back in 2013. And that's difficult because a lot of things have gone away. However, one of the best things we have available to us is modern technology. And there have been a lot of advancements recently in technology, and I'm utilizing as many of those as I possibly can. I'm looking at this and taking it in a direction it hasn't gone before. So hopefully this brings the answers to the family and is able to put a close to the case. Culpable is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper, and produced by Jessica Knoll. Executive producers are myself, Mark Mennery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Our senior producer is John Street. Additional production by Todd McComas. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Dayton Cole, Pat Kicklighter, Adam Townsell, and Caleb Melcher of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins, with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Our cover art is by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcasts. Show notes, as well as bonus content, can be found on our website, culpablepodcasts.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you have any information about the murder of Brittany Stikes, we urge you to contact the Brown County Sheriff's Office by visiting their website, browncountyohiosheriff.us, where you can anonymously submit your information. Or you can contact Sergeant Quinn Carlson directly at 937-378-4435, extension 126, or by email at quincarlson at bcoso.com. You can also submit your information through our website, culpablepodcast.com. Thank you for listening.